the internet is, right? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Like, so the internet, like, you know, you can go viral with things. Like, you, you know, people are out there doing all sorts of things, looking, you know, for their, their, their moment of, of fame and glory and, and looking in the spotlight, which, uh, you know, sometimes for doing, you know, ridiculous things or things that aren't that compelling, right? Which is, is, uh, is sort of countercultural in the sense that, or, or counterintuitive, I should say, in the sense that uh, for, for many, many years, like, the path to fame... The path to greatness was on a road that was paved with hard work and sacrifice and ambition. And to many, to, to, to a great extent, of course, it still is. Because although it's possible to find that, that, you know, that, that moment in the spotlight uh, through some sort of viral video or something, you know people who work hard and dedicate themselves to try to achieve greatness, to do their absolute best. And I, and I know somebody, a young realtor, a lot of you would know him as well, who uh, has had a great few years in real estate, has achieved national-level rankings. And if you look at the, 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 the how that was achieved, it was through a great deal of hard work and sacrifice to make some sort of a national ranking. Uh, many of you will know people who are involved in sports to, the, you know, to some uh, high level, which means that um, they would uh, have to work very hard. Just to think about the hockey players that you know or know of who have sacrificed so much and worked so hard to achieve some level of greatness. And by the time that any of these individuals make it to the professional level, the hours of dedication that that would require, And most of us have some tension in this because um, I don't know how you feel on your journey towards greatness. Where you would put yourself, say, on a spectrum of I'm nowhere to I'm great. Maybe you think greatness is something that's, you know, really meant for others. But here's where it gets complicated. It's, it's not just about recognition in, in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's also about our own desires and goals, even though they might seem small by comparison. And where do you find yourself when, when you think about um, your motives for why you do things? Most of us want our you know, for parents, we want our kids to do well. We want them to achieve something in life. But as much as that can be motivated by our love for those, our kids and our care and our concern for them uh, and wanting them to succeed for all these reasons, you know, there's also this element of us, you know, as parents, I know, sometimes where it's like, yeah, but when my kid does good, it reflects well on me. So now all of a sudden I find a tension, even when I'm trying to do the right things, that there's, there's this part of me that's thinking about my self-interest. And I think that even what I'm doing here this morning is such, such a, a, um, a tangible example of this for me, right? If I stand up here and I try to communicate something from God's word that is true and meaningful and will have an impact on people's lives... I have all of these 
really significant motivations to stand up here and do the best job that I could possibly do to communicate something true. But there's also this part of me that wants people to say, hey, you did a good job. And, and that is always a tension that exists for me, and I, I expect for you as well, uh, that, that we start looking uh, as followers of Jesus at our motivations. And is it okay for us to aspire to greatness? Or should I be reorienting my view in some way? It's not exactly an easy question to answer. I know that most of you here today, I don't think there's an arrogant person in this congregation. But when you start thinking about pride and start thinking of it about, uh, you know, in terms of the, the subtler side of pride and, and how it is our selfishness and our self-centeredness, well... I'd be the first to confess I have challenges that oftentimes I'm very self-interested. I've already confessed this morning, even as I stand up here and speak, there's that part of my self-interest that says I want to be recognized for doing a good job. I'd like to be affirmed. How do I hold that intention with the greater ambition to do a good job for God's glory? How do you hold these things in tension in your own life? And fortunately, right, the Bible doesn't leave us to struggle with stuff like this. We heard verses read this morning um, from Mark chapter 10, and it is one of, uh, one of the most interesting stories when you start to unpack it. Um, Jesus has this really compelling interaction with his disciples on the subject of greatness. What does it mean to be great? So you have James and John, these two brothers, the sons of Zebedee. We know a little bit about them from the scriptures who come to Jesus and they have this question that they want to ask him. And it's no small thing, really, when you stop and think about it. They want to sit in places of honor. They somehow recognize the trajectory that Jesus is on is taking him to a place where eventually he is, go he is going to be recognized for who he is. And all they're really asking is, hey, can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left hand? In order for you to wrap your head around this, think about um, for a minute. It, and I was trying to think of a good example, and it got hard because I was just thinking about, you know, if you were to visit somebody who is important... And, and I started thinking of examples, and I was like, well, what about the premier? And I was like, well, half of you would say yay, and half of you would say boo, right? So I got thinking, well, okay, maybe the, the prime minister, and, well, half of you would say boo, and half of you would say yay, right? And I thought about the president, and I was like, no, I'm not going to go there. And, and so I was like, like, who, somebody, like who's, who is somebody really famous that you would like, you know, you think would be an honor to spend time with? Somebody give me an example of somebody famous that would be... Who? <laughs> I'm not sure if I even want to go there because I don't know who that is. Because I'm not. Oh, Spider-Man. Okay, Tom Holland. Okay, so there you go. An example. Famous, 
famous actor. Thank you, Reagan. So there you go, an example right off the bat, somebody famous. Now, see, here's the thing. I have been at these kind of meet-and-greet things with artists. And if you can imagine a Tom Holland, right, or somebody else that is famous, imagine you're at one of these things. What often happens is you go through the lineup, and you get to the person, and if you're lucky, right, you'll get a signature and maybe a little handshake, a quick selfie, and then you move along, right? That's the way this thing works. Now, just imagine if you were to come up in that lineup to somebody, and you insert the person, because I don't even know who Tom Holland is, that, that you, you come up to them, and, 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 and he says to you, hold up, pull up a chair, and sit here right next to me on my right hand, and we'll chat for a little bit. Just imagine that for a minute. What would that be like, Reagan? Can you imagine how everybody else would feel? Yeah, like, like, you imagine like, how jealous people would be? What an honor it would be. Like, the, the, the example that probably came to my mind most readily was like you know, a royal kind of situation, right? Because in royalty, they have all these protocols, right? And you don't ever dare break the protocol because you would come up and you would do the things in the right order and you, I'd probably get arrested because I'd mess something up. But... But you have to do all this stuff, in, you know, and you just, but just imagine you were in that situation and, and, and the queen said to you, no, come and sit at my right hand. Now just pull up a chair next to my throne here and let's talk. What a place of honor that would be. Does that give you a little sense of maybe what these guys were asking Jesus? Can we just have these seats right here on the right and the left hand? What an audacious request. And, and what is particularly interesting to me about this is Jesus doesn't like slap them down and say, what are you guys thinking? Why would you even ask such an audacious thing? Like that's just, I can't believe how ambitious you are. Why would you even do this? Jesus takes a totally different track with the conversation. He says to them, you don't actually know what you're asking. And are you able to drink from the cup that I am going to drink from and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Can, like, to go through what I am going to go through. And Jesus has, has, even in the verses preceding the ones we heard read this morning from, from Mark chapter 10, where you know, Jesus is telling the disciples about what's coming. And the question is, do they really get it? Do they understand and, and James and John say, you know what? Yeah, we're in. And clearly they had some understanding that there was going to be a rough patch before the, the, the Jesus achieved his glory. They may not have had the, a, a, a really good idea of what it was going to be like, the, the full depth and breadth of, of what was coming. But, but they probably could anticipate that there's going to be a rough patch. And, and they were willing to stick, stick it out. And Jesus actually affirms them and says, yeah, you guys, you guys will. But the question that you're asking me isn't actually one that I can answer. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this, but I want to move on from it because, uh, because what, what I think is very practical and helpful for us is, is found a little bit further. Now, it is interesting to note that the other disciples found out what Jesus, or what you know, James and John had said. And they were ticked off, right? They were angry. 
And um, I wonder, when I read verses of Scripture like this, I wonder, were they upset because James and John did something terrible? Or were they upset because they didn't think of it first? But for whatever reason, they're upset. And, and uh, Jesus knows, of course, now that there's this dissension in the ranks. And he get, brings them together and explains something to them that is so countercultural that they don't get it. He says to them, you know what it's like to be lorded over. You know how the systems and, and, and the, you know, the politics of this world work. You know what it's like to be under this authority, to be ruled over. And that hasn't changed from their culture to ours. We understand the system, the way that the world works. We know what it is like to have hierarchy and structure and authority and top-down and those that are greater and those that are least. And Jesus says to them, but it's going to be different with you. It's going to be different in my kingdom. The greatest among you will be servants. Right? The one who will be greatest is, is the slave, is the one who serves others. Now, I have a hard time finding words to properly articulate just how profound that is. Hopefully, you have some sense. As it was then, so it is now. It is upside down and backwards, and it is not the way the world works. No matter what our altruistic views might seem like in our current culture about how we would esteem certain roles, you think about you know how important it is you know and and uh, something like being a personal support worker, and then you compare that to a baseball player, and I I checked it out and there's a little discrepancy in the salary. What does our world really value? Not the servant. And Jesus says that this is the way it is going to be. Those who serve will be the greatest. And not only does Jesus say this, but he, he even cites himself as the ultimate example. That he has come to serve. And if you stop and you look through the entirety of Jesus' ministry, you will see time and again how he exemplifies this servant posture, right? That from beginning to end, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Just a short time, you know, not so long after all of this stuff happens, right? You know, Jesus will find himself in the upper room with his disciples, around their last meal. And before, you know, like what, what everything that he said and done up to that point, obviously they still didn't get it because he's the one that wraps the towel around himself and goes around and washes their feet. He's the one who takes this servant posture. Again, exemplifying that the rules and the ethics of his kingdom are different 
what he desires for us is so different that the one who serves will be the greatest. What I love about this church is, is I see so many people here with servant hearts. But each of us knowing ourselves, we know that there's always, there's always things that we're not as good at. And we can serve well in some areas and maybe be lacking in others. And the question that hopefully we can ask ourselves this morning is, how do I exemplify this? How do I, how do I, how do I reconcile this servant heart desire that God is calling me to have with other parts of my life? Should I have ambition? And I think it's interesting that, you know what? Jesus didn't really condemn James and John for their desire. And I don't know how much you want to read into that, but, but I think that maybe... Jesus didn't think that their desiring something great wasn't such a bad thing. But what Jesus is saying is that the posture that we hold, the attitude that we take to these things is so critical, and it's what informs everything else. And oftentimes it would be easy to say, well, how do I do this? Well, I could follow the example of Jesus in broad terms. Yes, you will find it time and time again. But you know what's really compelling here is that Jesus actually gives us something very practical in this, in this passage that actually I think is really, really foundational for us assuming the servant's posture. And it's found... Like in so many of Jesus' greatest thoughts, it's found in the form of a question. And if you look in chapter 10, as we were reading in verse 36, when James and John come to Jesus and they say, we want to ask you something, what's his response in verse 36? He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, remember, we're talking about Jesus, right, who, who at other points in the Scripture, like at, at, time and again, it says things like, Jesus knew what they were thinking, or he knew what was going on in their hearts. So I have this suspicion that Jesus already had a good idea of where James and John were coming from. But he very specifically asked this question, what do you want me to do for you? And I think this is like the ultimate sort of servant question because it puts us in a posture where we're allowing ourselves to be servants to serve others what do you want me to do for you Jesus who is the king of all creation He humbled himself in front of these guys and said, what do you want me to do for you? Made himself a servant. Unless you think that's a one-time event, <laughs> look at the verses following what we heard read this morning. If you could get to, in chapter 10, verse 51, 
There's the story of an interaction with Jesus with a blind beggar, a guy named Bartimaeus, who's out making some noise, saying, Jesus, Jesus, I want to, you know, see Jesus. And, and people are telling him, be quiet. No, no. And finally Jesus says, no, bring him to me. And again, the same Jesus who knows people's hearts and knows their intentions and motives is asking this question. Never mind the fact that this guy's blind. In that culture, in that day, meant he was just the lowest of the low. He was a beggar. He couldn't support himself. What do you think he wants? It really doesn't take a genius, does it? But Jesus very intentionally asked this question again. What do you want me to do for you? You who are the lowest of the low. Jesus postures himself as a servant. What do you want me to do for you? I want you just to ponder that question. As we follow the example of Jesus, what would it look like for you if you were to start asking that question in different settings? Because some of us are really good at doing this sort of thing in certain places and times and not so good in others. Like, a lot of us, you know, if it's a church event, we'll be there, we'll be moving stuff, setting up, tearing down. You could find any number of people in the kitchen, their arms up to the elbows in dishwater. Like, yeah, serving. But then the question is, do we take that same posture and bring it to other places where we live? and work. Do we have that same posture at work? When we interact with the people around us in our neighborhood, do we have this posture of servanthood? Do we have it in our own homes? Can you imagine in some in some of some of us, you know, if we were to go home after a long day and like, you know, what do you want to do more than anything else? Maybe put your feet up, watch some TV or something. Imagine like you were approaching, you know, your spouse and saying, what do you want me to do for you? Changes the paradigm, doesn't it? Teenagers, be careful with this. If you start going home and asking your parents, what do you want me to do for you? You might send them into cardiac arrest. Yes. <laughs> Which is, I'm afraid to tell you, the unfortunate reality of the gospel. <laughs> right? This is what Jesus does. He raises expectations. And if you were to take that to your workplace, and, you know, and, and even in the place where what you're, what you're aspiring to is to be the best that you can possibly be. To aspire to greatness. To say, yes, this is an area where I am trying to achieve excellence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if we're examining our hearts and we're asking, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I think what Jesus is saying is, go for it. But, Make sure you continue to posture yourself as a servant. What does it look like to go for it, but to continually take this position of, what do you want me to do for you? 
How can I help you? In your neighborhood, with those, you know, who you live and interact with in that, you know, in, the, in that context, what would it look like if more of us were to reach out and, and, and interact with people and say, what can I do for you? How can I help? I think that this is something that Jesus is commanding us to do, not just suggesting that servanthood is, is part of his kingdom, that his desire for us is to serve one another. And, and the influence and the impact that this could potentially have on the kingdom for all of us if we were to live this out. Just imagine for the next week, if you were to take the next seven days and, and put this into practice, to look for opportunities everywhere that you interact over the next week and to just continue to try to posture yourself to pray for those opportunities and to ask how you can serve others. What might that do? How might that change relationships or open up opportunities to go deeper? Only the Lord knows. But it's a, it's a great adventure for us to go on with him, isn't it? Father God, as we uh, contemplate the words of Scripture this morning, Lord, I just pray that you would help us this week to look for those opportunities, to ask you to open our, our hearts and our eyes to see where we have opportunities to serve others. And that by the power of your spirit, Lord, that we could live more like Jesus by embracing his, his posture of servanthood. That we would seek others and ask how we can serve. In Jesus' name, amen.